Welcome to the Jesus Collective Podcast. We're a network that exists to provide relationships and resources to amplify a Jesus-centered movement, and we seek to embody a more hopeful vision of following Jesus in our cultural moment. Join us as we learn from those who are looking to live out a greater Jesus centricity in their areas of leadership and mission. If you're new to Jesus Collective, welcome. Check us out on social media or at JesusCollective.com for ways you can connect to this growing movement. Okay, let's get into today's podcast. Well, welcome to our listening audience to Jesus Collective Podcast. It's me, Paul Walker, and I send apologies from Ashana Boren. She couldn't make it here today. She's having vacation. Could you imagine that? She went on vacation and left me with this workload. And I know she's laughing listening to this now, but yeah, she sends her apologies and love to our listening audience. Today, we have an extra special guest. They're all extra special. I should say that, but I, I, I love our guest today because I've had, uh, just so many great conversations with him in the past. And today on the podcast, we have Derek Vreeland. And Derek Vreeland is the discipleship pastor at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. In addition to teaching and leading discipleship ministries at Word of Life Church, Derek enjoys reading, riding, running, and hiking. He and his wife, Jenny, live in St. Joe and have three boys, Wesley, Taylor, and Dylan. He has one daughter-in-law, Maggie, and recently one grandson, Leo. So welcome to the podcast, Derek. You are welcome here. Thanks, Paul. It's good to be with you on the podcast. Good to have another conversation. I love conversations. It sounds like you have quite a bit of these online conversations, given what I know is true of you these days. Um, yeah, I I, we... I, yeah. Well, we we have an online congregation these days, and uh, so I spend time almost every day online on Zoom with somebody. So uh, happy to to jump on this podcast and uh, talk with you again, my friend. Hmm. Yeah. So I I read a little bio, like we always do, but like, is there any other like gaps or kind of interesting things about yourself you'd want our audience to know about you? Oh, I don't know what else is interesting. I actually am a person of very few hobbies. I uh, just had a birthday a couple of weeks ago and building up to that, my family's like, well, what do you want for your birthday? And I'm like, I don't know, a book? I don't know. I just, <laughs> I have very few hobbies. Is it, um, isn't that a dangerous place to be when like, your hobbies, like let's say reading, like like you want a gift for reading, and yet like that's also your work. That when you relax and read, and when you work, you read. Like, isn't that a curious thing, right? Yeah, it's it's yeah, yeah it is crazy. I remember when I was wrapping up seminary, my last semester working on my MDiv, my last semester, I only had eight credit hours. So a lot of my friends they had backloaded a lot of their coursework, and so it's the last few weeks. For graduation and they are slammed with papers and all this kind of stuff and we had a graduation meeting and i show up and i have a john grisham novel uh it was the rainmaker mm. um still have it on the shelf behind me and i walk in there with that book and a friend of mine's like are you are you just reading a novel is that what you're reading i'm like bro i'm done with all my coursework he's like oh i got so much to do i can't wait till i can read whatever i want to i was like yeah i'm just reading novels for fun because i'm done 
And, and that's kind of you. You read novels for fun still. Like, do you do you find that you read a lot of works of, of fiction in addition to like some of your theological reading? I, I don't read as much fiction as I used to. It really has ebbed and flowed for me. So at the end of graduation, I was reading a lot of fiction. And then it, I really wasn't reading much literature at all um, until I had heard Eugene Peterson. Well, I heard Eugene Peterson in an interview talk about pastors um, reading fiction and then had an opportunity at a conference to interact with Eugene uh, before his death. This is maybe 15 years ago. And he had said uh, how important that was. And he talked about Wendell Berry. So then I did a deep dive into Wendell Berry. I did that for a couple of years. And I'm kind of in a place now where I'm not reading a lot. Um, I just, I am reading, well, I'm writing books. And so I'm reading so much in preparation for what I'm writing. And then I just continue to meet more and more Christian writers. And then when I meet them, I want to read their stuff. And then there's so much good Christian nonfiction. Mm. Yeah, um, I agree. You talked about interviewing Matthew Bates. I just finished his uh, Why the Gospel. Mm. And there's just so much good stuff coming out nonfiction-wise. My reading list grows and grows and grows. And I just keep kicking the, the fiction stuff to the side. Yeah, and and something I know about you is like you're you're a pretty big fan of NT, right? And so anyone that can commit to reading his tombs of material, <laughs> like it, you, you got a bit of work ahead of you when you're yeah. Tom, to NT, Tom's right? now you know Tom's now in semi retirement, and so his writing has really slowed down. Um, so that's good. I can get caught up on some of his earlier works. I haven't read absolutely everything, so uh, but yeah, so much good. I mean, with that said, it's a somewhat of a confession because I still believe what Eugene Peterson said is true, and that is pastors um, who are given this great opportunity to serve a local congregation. Um, our imagination and storytelling, which affects our preaching and pastoral care, um, is really shaped by fiction. So I'm really confessing my sins. I yeah. think there is such value in reading fiction. And I do need to get back to it, but there's just so many other books I want to read first. I mutually want to confess my sins. I actually just finished up a, a preaching course for my master's, and that was one of my takeaways. I need to read more broadly and, and not just like theology books, but fiction, poetry, yeah. all of that. So Wendell Berry, I'll add him to the list. Uh, oh, you have yeah. to. Okay, <laughs> great. Well, you mentioned in the book... Uh, which you have written, the book you've written is Centering Jesus. And you write in the acknowledgement that that when you go about writing, you do it because you're compelled to write. And so I want to ask you, what compelled you to write a book on Centering Jesus? Yeah, writing for me is um, instinctual. It really flows out of my pastoral calling um, as a teacher. When I was pastoring my first church. Uh, I was in my early 30s. This is the mid-2000s. This is 2003, 2004, 2005. I was really discerning my call and, and trying to consider, Lord, am I, am I called to, to plant a new church? You know, the 90s and the, the first decade of the new millennium, you know, that was when man, church planting was the thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, church planting still happened. I still believe church planting is, is a highly effective form of uh, evangelism and and so go church planters and but being young and i had a youth ministry background and loving the church like everyone else where i was that kind of stage of life 
was trying to discern, you know, my call to be a church planter. And through that process, I realized, no, that wasn't my call, that I, I just sensed the Lord saying that my call is to teach and to write and to be a voice. And I have an English writing um, undergraduate degree um, that was helpful in seminary when you're writing papers. Um, but at this point, I had written, um, let's see, at that point, I had not written it. Yeah, I had not written any books yet, um, but began to cultivate that that calling. So, yeah, for me, writing is is a calling. It's a it's a compulsion. And Centering Jesus was born out of, well, just my daily Bible reading. Mm. You know, I think uh, for those of us that are sort of in the evangelical, charismatic Pentecostal, post-evangelical kind of wing of the mm. church, you know, we see prayer and scripture reading as just real cornerstone disciplines. And for me, I follow the Daily Office Lectionary, which is a two-year Bible reading plan where every day I read the Old Testament, I read from the Epistles, and I read from the Gospels. And I appreciate the lectionary's orientation towards ending in the Gospels. So the last thing I read every morning is either something from Jesus or about Jesus. And so I was, this is a couple of years ago, I'm in my you know daily Bible reading. I'm not looking for a book idea, but I, my epistle reading had me in the book of Revelation. And I was in Revelation 7, and I was reading through the New Revised Standard Version. Which is my favorite years. version. That's the one I love using. For Rock personal. on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, I like to, every two years when the Daily Office Lectionary restarts, I like to start in a new translation. Mm. Uh, yeah. This year, I'm in The Message, uh, nice. speaking of Eugene Peterson, and mm. thoroughly enjoying that. But at this time, I was in a two-year through the New Revised Standard Version. And I'm reading uh, Revelation chapter 7, and in verse 17, uh, John the Revelator sees the Lamb in the center of the throne. Other translations will say in the midst of the throne. Um, but the, the slain Lamb image is really the interpretive key for the book of Revelation. I always tell people, book of Revelation's weird. You got to yeah. keep your eye on the Lamb. And so... In this reading in particular, I was drawn to the lamb images, um, sort of following my own advice and just my own Bible reading. Anytime there was a, a reference to the lamb, uh, my attention was drawn there. And then this, this uh, the way the NRSV words, uh, Revelation 7, 17, the lamb in the center of the throne. And as I was reading it, I had a passing thought. I'm like, yeah, you know, that's what we need right now in the church, particularly in North America. What we need is a fresh vision of the lamb in the center, the ruling and reigning lamb on the throne. But in the in the in the very center, the lamb at the center, that's what we need right now. And that became the seed that then turned into an online small group. So we um, have an online congregation and we do online small groups. And in 20, January 2021, um, I led um, a group of there were maybe 20, 25 people on Zoom. We met every week for nine or 10 weeks. I can't remember how long it was. And I called it the lamb at the center. 
And that small group um, framework, each of those sessions um, became chapters in this new book. So I did have an idea that, okay, this lamb at the center concept that I'm seeing in the book of Revelation, I think it's what we need in the church. This possibly could be a book. And so as I was preparing both my teaching and these conversations, um, I began to kind of see chapters and, and a book emerge. And so uh, that was the genesis of the book. And I felt compelled to write it because we are so polarized and divided in the church, primarily here in the States. We are just bitterly divided uh, over politics and social issues. Uh, There's these antagonisms that just run our culture. And unfortunately, the church has been infected with division and antagonisms. And I think a fresh vision of, of Jesus as the Lamb of God is exactly what we need as an anecdote uh, to those uh, divisions and and antagonisms in the church. I, I definitely think you're speaking the language of this like tribe, this network that we call Jesus Collective, um, because like one of our kind of like core foundational kind of markers of a new reformation, we call it uh, number one is. God always looks like Jesus and all scripture is properly read through him. And so like, as you're saying, like we need to center Jesus, that's something that's so dear to this, this tribe of people. So I really think like your book has something uh, for our tribe. And, and as I was reading, it, I was like, you're saying the things that we are sensing too. So it seems yeah. like, seems like this spirit is blowing this kind of a message into the church as like a, a helpful reframe. And it's, it's so helpful to read someone that's, confirming uh some stuff that we're we're kind of resonating with here at jesus collective yeah i think there's something happening um i participated in the charismatic renewal in the 90s early 2000s and i think the charismatic renewal dating back to the 1970s i think was a genuine move of god's spirit i recognize that i think it got off the rails i think it got weird today it's gotten in certain pockets really weird um but i i equally discern that there is a ecumenical movement and the charismatic movement of the 1970s was ecumenical i mean it was through all denominations oh, yeah. the sort of the sort of like resurgence of god's presence the gifts of the spirit and, and what i'm sensing now is this ecumenical movement that is is Jesus centered because that's what that's what is binding us together. So I think as the church in North America faces um, the growing floodwaters of secularism, I think what binds us together um, is a focus on Jesus, yeah. um, the the historical Jesus, the Jesus of our ancient creeds. And I think what's happening with this Jesus-centered movement is we are seeing churches that maybe were once divided coming together in in unity, a sort of answer to Jesus' prayer in John 17, where he prayed that all believers in his name would be one. And that's that that deeply resonates um, in me, I think, through the book. You see um, all sorts of signposts of that, mm-hmm. sort of my praise of all sorts of different kinds yeah. of Christians. 
Um, but I think this Jesus-centered movement is drawing the church together at a time where we need to recognize that we need each other. Yeah. Um, I think our post-Christian culture in North America is going to only grow more hostile towards the church. And so we need both a peaceable response to that hostility, but we also need to you know, beat our swords into plowshares um, between our denominations and recognize, nah, we're we're brothers and sisters in Jesus. It is it is our affiliation and our allegiance to King Jesus that binds us together. Yeah, if if I could draw like a connection between like the charismatic renewal of you know the work of the Spirit um, and and also like this Jesus center, this sort of centering Jesus movement we see happening in the church. It seems like that's what the spirit is up to these days. And it shouldn't surprise us. Like you have a chapter on this in your book, like right. uh, the spirit points us to Jesus and we'll get there. But before right. we get there, I, I should ask you uh, more, more of a, like a foundational question, because in your opening chapter, you introduce us to the curious case of the diminished or diminishing lamb. You write, too many followers of Jesus have lost sight of the lamb, and in doing so, have forgotten the peaceable nature of God's kingdom. What do you think has led to this case of the diminishing lamb, and what might be causing Jesus followers, the people that say they follow Jesus, to actually decenter Jesus in their lives? Well, when we walk in the the ways of the Lamb, when we walk in the peace teachings of Jesus in particular, we have to recognize that that faithful discipleship and and peacemaking in our world requires a whole lot of patience. And I think Christians, when they begin to decenter Jesus or lose sight of Jesus as the humble, peaceable, meek lamb, that happens because they're they're just impatient. Um, Jesus gives us all these parables that the kingdom grows so slowly that the kingdom expanse is something that takes a lot of time. We, we need the patience of a farmer, but I think we get impatient and it's so easy to sort of grab on to cultural values of productivity and efficiency and pragmatism to do the work of the kingdom and in doing so we we lose sight the, the peaceable lamb is I, I use this uh analogy in that chapter about uh, sports teams right you have all these sports teams that pick mascots that um bring up feelings of victory and and conquering and these powerful images you know you got rams and you get bears and you know you get these powerful images um and it's funny some teams with college and i'm thinking like professional football sometimes they pick really strange mascots but it's popular to pick these mascots that are rugged um nobody is picking Mary's little lamb. No, curiously, curiously. Yeah. <laughs> so anyone, anyone in our listening audience, maybe you might want to name your sports team after a little lamb. Uh, yeah, I mean, can you, you imagine? Weird looks. Yeah, that's like no, no fighting lambs out there. Um, uh, but this is the image we're given um, of Jesus um, throughout Scripture. 
Um, and so in following the lamb, walking in the ways of the lamb requires a lot of patience. And I think we're just impatient. And so we sort of want things to move along a lot quicker. And uh, so to position a local church in a culture war embattled us versus them, you can energize people with that. And you can energize people quickly if you prey on their fears and find a common enemy and then go to fight a culture war battle, you can you can build a church that way. Um, it's just not the Holy Spirit. That's a very unholy spirit. And so I think it's that impatience that has caused us to lose sight of the lamb. Mm. Where have you discovered in the story of your own life, like what? the discovery of your own decentering of Jesus where you, you know, you looked back and you thought, huh, like maybe something else was at the center. Do you have a story of that in your own experience? Well, I can certainly see times in my spiritual journey where Jesus as the lamb wasn't at the center. It was more of an American hyper masculine Jesus so I grew up in as a as a child and teenager in the 1980s, you know, watching all the action hero movies, Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger and, and uh, Clint Eastwood, and um, and I've recognized in my own spiritual journey that I really bought in to a version and vision of Jesus um, that was the sort of militant masculine image that grew out of my idolization of these um, action heroes in the movies. Jesus as and, a prized fighter with a tattoo down his leg coming to make someone hurt, right? Yeah. <laughs> and somehow yeah. the sword is in his hand, right? Like it's yeah. interesting so, how we can even reinterpret scripture. Exactly. Those. And but, I am ashamed uh, to say that I uh, mimicked and parroted, you know, that kind of of image of Jesus in my, in my teaching, uh, probably 17, 18 years ago. And so in, in, in my life, that was really, you know, the, the, the Jesus as the lamb w was minimized. So it wasn't that Jesus was decentered, but I had bought into that hyper masculine, particularly militant masculine, uh, version. When I read, uh, Kristen Dumay's, uh, Jesus and John Wayne, I was like, I kept writing in the margin, yep, that was me. Yep, that was me. Um, because I lived through all of that. And I do think that the rise of uh, militant masculinity in the church and white Christian nationalism, I think there's a lot of overlap between those two movements. That's happening yep. now. I mean, I, I, I see that as a threat to the gospel. And uh, which is, again, compelled me to write this book. And I feel passionate about that because I bought into that mm. hyper and militant masculinity. So it wasn't that Jesus was decentered, but it was definitely the lamb had been decentered in my life. Well, you ask 
in the book, and you write, you say that if Jesus is going to be our guide, we need to define who Jesus is. Kind of going back to, you know, Jesus was at the center, but certainly not this imagery right. of the lamb. Uh, and, and it kind of made me think of that scene, one of my favorite kind of like dumb comedy movies, uh, has Will Ferrell in it. And it's, it's the movie Talladega Nights. And there's this scene where they're all at like, supper and they're praying and right. you know he's praying to baby jesus eight pound six ounce jesus <laughs> right, right. Uh, and and it's just a, a curious conversation and like people on the table are like you know when i picture jesus he's singing lead guitar or singing lead <laughs> vocals for leonard skinner but it right. really does raise the question like if we're gonna center jesus it does raise the question like which jesus and yes so if, if we're gonna ask which jesus and if we're going to define who Jesus is, how do we faithfully do that task? How do I not just, you know, uh, invent the God of my own choosing? Well, we we really need to depend on the theologians who are interested in the historical first century Jesus. I buy in wholeheartedly to the the Jesus of history is the Christ of faith. And we need those scholars who are wedding together for us history and theology, uh, because theological traditions can reinvent a Jesus who was not the Jesus of history. Um, but, and I know this is a Jesus collective value you, you shared a moment ago, that God is like Jesus, but God is particularly like Jesus of Nazareth from the first century, that this embodiment of God in human form, this is a demonstration, the supreme demonstration of what God is like, and all other interpretations of who Jesus is really has to bow down to this image. And there are those that want to take a hyper-violent reading of Revelation and say, well, that's who Jesus was, but who Jesus really is, is this, you know, conqueror, you know, with the tattoo and the blood on his robe in Revelation 19. And I think that that's a mistake. I think it has to be grounded and rooted in history, uh, the historic Jesus. Even as the church began to wrestle with how is Jesus of Nazareth the embodiment of Israel's God, and so we're given the the Nicene faith, you know, the understanding that you know there is there is one God and that the the Son is the very same substance as the Father. All that high Christology, I still see as rooted in the Gospels, in the revelation of the historic Jesus. So we we need that history, and we need to uh, take a deep dive there, uh, because that is the reigning Lamb of God, the Jesus that's revealed in the Gospels. Mm. That's so good. And yeah, I think you you begin to unpack that in your book about helping us see Jesus more clearly. But w what I love about your book is, like, it wasn't just an intellectual thought experiment. Like, when you talk about Jesus, you're you're talking about someone who is living and who can be encountered, like the mystical, yeah. like like you're not just this isn't just a you know a, a theological thought experience. Um, you write, "We become what we behold," which is like just my favorite throwaway line from your book. And then you're like you have this entire chapter about like 
well, entire section actually about spiritual practices and encountering and beholding the lamb. Um, and so I'm curious, like, can you share why, if we're going to center Jesus in a secular age, why, why do we need to behold? Why do we need to actually move to encounter? Why do we need to have things like prayer and uh, contemplation and silence built into our, our lives if we're going to center Jesus? Well, theology um, is important. I think understanding um, who this God revealed in Jesus is and all the tools that we get from theology and that sort of faith-seeking understanding, right? That's Anselm's line, this, 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 this intellectual exercise of learning and growing is important. But What's supreme about the God revealed in Jesus is that God is personable and that God is relatable, that God is not a subject as much as God is a person. And so I only know another person through personal encounter, right? So part of my job in our church is I connect with a lot of the new people who will come to our church. So we have, you know, a whole process for people who are new. They fill out the card. I contact them. If they'd like to get together, I I get a a coffee meeting. Now, I'll go ahead and pull back the curtain a little bit and say that I normally stalk them on social media. Um, I usually do that first. I do. Of course. I think Facebook and social media, it's the only reason I still have it on my phone. It's so it, like it is it helps literally me in ministry. <laughs> it is literally a book yeah. of faces. And so, yeah, I'll stalk people on social are you, media. Wait, are, are you saying that that Facebook is our new church directory? Okay, I can I can believe that. <laughs> Maybe so. Um, so, it, yeah, I'll stalk them on Facebook in part because I want to see what they look like. So if I'm meeting them in the coffee shop at our church and they're walking in the door, I'd like to get a face to go with the name. But I'll stalk them on social media. And from that, I can get data. I can get information about them, right? It, it, depending on, like, yeah. if they have a Facebook account, depending on how much they have filled out and whether or not they have a public or private account, you know, I can I can find out, I can find out their age, their marital status, their political views, their religious affiliation. You know, I can go through and judge the pictures that they post. I'm like, oh, they're a cat person. Okay, I've got to put that in a different category. Haven't figured out cat people yet. Um, so I can get information uh, from social media, uh, but having information about a person is not the same thing as knowing a person by personal experience. So when I sit down with a cup with a cup of coffee, meeting someone new, I almost always start the same way, and I say, "Tell me your story," mm-hmm. um, because as a person starts to tell their story, and I'm listening and often asking questions because I'm curious about people. Mm. This is how I begin to know them by that personal encounter, that face-to-face. They're sharing their story. I start talking about stories. Um, If it moves in sort of a gospel direction, which sometimes it does, sometimes people are meeting with me, not because they want to get to know me, but they're looking for God. And so then they've opened up with their story. I've shared some stories and then together we walk along the gospel story. But it's that it's that personal interaction is how I really I've spent time with this person. That's how I get to know them. Well, I think God, the God revealed in Jesus is a living person, a living being. And so as important as theology is, 
um, it's not complete um, until we have come and sat at the Lord's feet and been in the presence of God. Mm-hmm. And so the practices of, uh, we've mentioned scripture reading, and particularly prayer. Prayer is about attending to the presence of God. And so I include um, a sort of how do we keep Jesus at the center of our prayer life chapter? Mm-hmm. Because in my spiritual journey, Learning to to pray well and to pray consistently has been so important yeah. for my connectivity to the presence of God and my growth in the image of Jesus. That for me, without prayer, I don't. Without prayer, I know I can't keep Jesus centered in my life. But it's that daily personal contact through prayer uh, that keeps Jesus centered for me. Why might church leaders in a secular age? like lean into the practice of like transcendence and prayer and attending to the presence of God. What does this do for us and the rising tides of secularism, as you mentioned in your book? Well, um, Jamie Smith, uh, James K. Smith talks a little bit about the cracks in secularism. Um, One of those cracks is there is a longing for transcendence. Um, as we are in a secular culture and it and it grows and we're being formed by that North America, I mean, it's just in the air that we breathe. There is still this ache and this longing for something beyond ourselves. There's an there's an instinct that secularism hasn't completely stamped out. Um, but the I, I think because of the sophistication of modern people, particularly with access, you know, to Google. Uh, you can't fool them. So it's not a matter of creating a transcendent experience. I think particularly evangelicalism has has figured that out, hopefully, by and large, that just having a, a, a room that's dark with stage lights and fog machines and, and music at a certain volume you know, at a certain key can can manufacture a sense of the transcendence. I think I think most Christian leaders that you know sort of are in evangelicalism or kind of post-evangelicalism recognize that's not what people are looking for. Um, they can find that in so many other places better than the church could ever do it. But there is this ache and long for transcendence that if people are willing to patiently walk with us, we can lead them to an experience of transcendence and it touches people where they they deeply ache for it. I, I, I do think I think we all have that ache. I, I do think though it gets drowned out. That little that little inside voice that's longing for a connectivity to, to transcendence, which we would say, you know, is the God revealed in Jesus. Um, it gets drowned out by by busyness and 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 worry and stress and activity and entertainment kind of drowns out that voice, but I think it's present. And so if we as church leaders can create authentic experiences and means by which people can experience the transcendent God, once they get a taste of it, um, then there, well, there's just no looking back. One of the ways you talk about that you do this in your own life is through the Jesus prayer. And I'm, I wonder for our listening audience, if you might share why you resonate with the Jesus prayer, which is Lord Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Yeah. So this is a prayer that has just become 
an invaluable part of my life of prayer. I really do catch myself praying it all the time. It resonates with me in part because it is a prayer to Jesus, right? Lord, it's addressed, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. And I have experienced the awareness of the presence of God that comes from praying that. I've experienced the how my mind gets drawn towards Jesus when I pray it. So I haven't had that experience. But then in learning more about it, I discovered that the Jesus prayer is really the foundation for Eastern Orthodox spirituality. And so in the chapter that I write, not to give everything away, uh, but the chapter that I write is really what I learned from uh, the late Metropolitan Callistos Ware. Oh, who, he's so good. Oh, my I love, goodness. I love his book, The Orthodox Way. It's an invaluable resource for me. Highly recommend The Orthodox Way. When I first read that, I kept thinking, wow, I'm more orthodox than I thought. <laughs> it really, for me, was the downside to I've had two seminary experiences um, at a seminary with a Pentecostal ethos and a seminary with a, with a Wesleyan ethos. And the what I missed in both of those was the theology and spirituality and liturgy of the Orthodox East. Um, so it's been a later discovery. But my chapter really is my what I've learned from Klistos Ware. And actually, when I was in the editing process of the book, uh, we got word that Metropolitan Ware uh, passed away. Uh, which was interesting. Actually, Gordon Fee and Callistos Ware both died while I was in the editing stage of my book. And I put it in my acknowledgments because Gordon Fee was the great New Testament scholar uh, who comes from uh, the Pentecostal tradition, sort of one of the best representatives of Pentecostalism. And I learned a lot. And actually, I quote from Fee uh, in my book, um, but then there's Klistos Ware, Timothy Ware, who was this incredible, ecumenically oriented, orthodox, he uses the title Metropolitan, it's kind of like Archbishop, um, but he loved the whole church and he loved the ecumenical dialogue, And but he's orthodox. And so <laughs> it's interesting that, that both of these figures um, are people who have influenced me, but they come from different traditions. So the book on the Jesus prayer really is what I learned from where, and he has a little book. You can still get it. It's, it's, it's like a big, thick pamphlet um, uh, called the Jesus prayer. And it's, it's what I uh, learned from where, um, and he talks about these four strands that are in that prayer. And the last one is the veneration of the holy name. And this is the value of the Jesus prayer, that it's a way to honor um, and to venerate the holy name of Jesus. And in the Orthodox tradition, you pray the Jesus prayer repetitively, uh, which for Protestants um, is a little off-putting. And people will ask, well, wait, didn't Jesus say something about vain repetition? Uh, to which I would respond that, well, yes, Jesus is critiquing vain repetition, not repetition in itself. Very good. The real, good. Yeah. the real work of praying the Jesus prayer or any rote prayer, memorized prayer, is giving intentionality to each word. And this is what they do in the Orthodox tradition. 
So they're not just mumbling the Jesus prayer, but they give great attention. And because you are honoring the name of Jesus, it's like your your heart gets drawn towards Jesus. And Ware talks about how um, Orthodox monks, because they will pray it hundreds and thousands of times, will sometimes wake themselves up at night praying the Jesus prayer. And that hasn't happened to me, but I have found myself awake in the middle of the night. And you know how it is, you wake up and your mind's kind of racing and you have a hard time going back to sleep. But I've developed this habit now that when I wake up, I start praying the Jesus prayer. Mm. And it doesn't take but a couple of cycles through that prayer when I drift off back to sleep. Um, because again, in the Orthodox tradition, uh, the the Jesus prayer is a part of the hesychastic prayer tradition. And what um, does hesychastic mean? Well, it's it's rooted in the Greek word, which I don't have right in front of me, which means stillness. Mm. And and the goal of praying in that way is to lead your soul to a place of stillness. So in hesychastic prayer, which has been debated in the church, whether it's a good thing or not a good thing, I'm on the side of it's a good thing. I would be on that also, side too. <laughs> it's also connecting uh, the prayer with your, your body mm. and which that integration of body and soul is so needed in Christian spirituality. So it's it's learning to to pray the prayer in a certain posture. Um, so for Orthodox monks, they'll sit on a, a small stool uh, with their head down towards their chest. Um, but the the prayer is with your breathing. So you take the Jesus prayer and half of it, you pray as you are inhaling. Mm. And then the second half, you pray as you are exhaling. And I've practiced this. And again, so I can just say from experience, there's something about praying that way. That there's the integration with the heart and the mind and the the spirit and the body, um, it it brings you to a place of peace and stillness. Um, and yeah, I learned all of that uh, because I paid attention to to the Orthodox Church. You know, I I was baptized in a Southern Baptist church, and then my roots are in the charismatic renewal. Uh, so there's this Baptist boy learning to pray mm. with an Orthodox monk. What and, a curious uh, time we all live in. It's, isn't it yeah. crazy? Yeah, but there's such, in... there's such treasures yeah. in the body of Christ yeah. that if we can recognize the value of our brothers and sisters in different traditions, there's so much mm. to be learned. What I'd love to do now, uh, rather than like move on to just the rest of the book, and we'll get there in a second, but like this is such a critical kind of opening section of your book that Jesus can be encountered that that yes. through spiritual practice, um, and and I think like it's it works against some of the antagonisms that you've previously mentioned. I'd be curious if you could lead our listening audience in your practice of just praying the Jesus prayer, take a, take a few moments and just lead us through this so that all those listening in can pray this with you. Yeah. We, well, I mean, and we want, you wanted me to do it in the hesychastic way. It, like you can breathing. do it whatever way you want, but I'd love for you to show our viewing audience, well, not show, well, maybe if they're watching this, but certainly those that are listening, like give them an example, like lead, walk us through this. Sure. 
Well, um, the hesychastic form is very quiet, so it doesn't. It works best when I'm in the room with people. So I may not pray it with the prayers, but the as I mentioned, the real work of praying the Jesus Prayer is to pray it slowly and give intentionality to each word. And so there's different things that I do. I have often, and particularly I do it during the season of Lent, I pray with an Orthodox prayer rope, um, which will lead me through the Jesus Prayer a hundred times. Other times what I do uh, more simply is I will uh, count on my fingers and I'll pray the Jesus Prayer um, 10 times, 20 times, Maybe for this exercise, we'll just do it five times. And uh, what I do is I always have my eyes closed, but I use my fingers to remember how many times I'm praying this, uh, which has been helpful because I can use my hands to do the counting. And then in my mind, I give attention to each word. And that's what prevents this from coming vain repetition, where we think we'll be heard of many words. Because again, that's what Jesus is warning us about. I mean, first century Jewish people prayed repetitive prayers. Repetition was a part of prayer life of the early church and has been the life of the church up until us more moderns who always want spontaneous prayers. So to prevent it from getting empty, because the prayer itself is not empty. I mean, each of the words, each of the 10 words of the Jesus prayer is filled with meaning. The prayer isn't vain or empty. What can be empty is me, or my mind can get kind of wandering and 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 lost and somewhat empty. So this is how I would pray it, and it, we'll just pray it, we'll pray it five times. And we'll use, yeah, we'll use our, use our fingers uh, to count. So if you're listening to this podcast, um, and you're not driving and you're able to um, find yourself in a, in a comfortable so spot. I encourage people to sit in a comfortable position and maybe you can put your hand um, on a table if you're seated at a table or put your hand uh, on your lap and use your fingers to count each time. And we're just going to slowly pray the Jesus prayer, which again is Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. And we're just going to pray that slowly five times. So if you're ready, take a deep breath. And let's pray this together. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. Amen. That was so beautiful. And like, I, I get a sense of like, when I walk through that, it just, it centers me. Like I immediately just have a sense of the presence of Jesus. It, it's, it's a, even just doing it five times. I felt my shoulders relaxing mm. about the fourth time. And it's so powerful. Let me add one thing. Um, Cause people ask about vain repetition. 
And then they also ask about, why are we asking God for mercy? Because the address mm-hmm. is to Jesus, right? It's the yeah. veneration of the holy name that centers us on Jesus. But people say, why are we asking God for mercy? I mean, isn't God already willing to do that? Which is, of course, true. So God, who is love, is the very embodiment of mercy. So praying the Jesus prayer repetitively is not begging God to do something that God is not already inclined to do. Rather, what the request for mercy does is it opens our heart more fully to receive mercy. And the formation that takes place in that is that we become more and more merciful, right? Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, so that when we come across tragedy or when we're squeezed by the stress of life, what leaks out of us is mercy. Um, because I've been doing this for years now, that that's my my reaction to any kind of tragedy um, of any kind of form is not to look for blame, like who's responsible for this, who screwed this up. But when I come across any kind of tragedy, whether it's something I've read in the news or it's uh, interpersonal within my own community, my reaction is, oh, Lord, have mercy. And so, yeah, we're not begging God to do something God doesn't want to do, but we're opening our heart more and more to mercy, becoming people of mercy. That's a great qualification. It makes me think of prayer school with Brian Zen, your your yes. lead pastor there, where he says that the primary purpose of prayer is not to get God to do what we think God should do, but to be properly formed. And even the yes. mercy, the request for mercy, it's it's less about like, man, God, could you just be merciful? It's like, no, I'm I'm being properly formed in the place right. of mercy. That's so good. Right. And so if we're if we're going to walk in the ways of the lamb, we need to be mercy givers. And this is yeah. one of the ways we get there. Well, let's continue on our exploration of centering Jesus, um, because for many people, when they approach scripture, they may, especially if they're from an evangelical tradition, they may have question marks. Like, are you are you saying, like, do we ignore the Old Testament? And, and you know, the but what? The, but what about like you know these images in Revelation that often confuse us or perplex us? And I'm just curious, like what does it mean as you as you quote a friend of our podcast, Brad Jerzak, to read Scripture in the Emmaus way? How do we lean into actually capturing Jesus at the center in our Scripture reading? Yeah. yeah, I appreciate Brad's. Um... You know, reading in the Emmaus way, this is the Luke uh, account of Jesus after the resurrection with those two disciples. And Jesus opens up to them, uh, beginning with Moses all the way through the prophets and and shows them the things written there concerning himself. And actually, um, then this happens again uh, with the disciples a bit later there in Luke. Um, but this is the way that Jesus was reading the Old Testament reading the Old Testament in a way that would lead us um, to Jesus. Actually, last night was leading a Bible study, and we were looking at uh, the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. And man, if you just read that in its historical context, you know, Moses is called up the mountain. The people can't go up the mountain. You know, there's thunder and there's clouds and there's lightning 
And God says, tell the people, don't even touch the mountain or they'll die. You know, it's this very kind yes, of... Yes, plenty of promises of death in the Old Testament. <laughs> yeah. Don't touch and, the mountain, don't touch the ark, don't touch. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, you know, I, I like to read those stories in their historical context first. I think that's a good first reading. And so we were discussing it in this kind of large group. And I remember we, we I asked the question, you know, so what do you see about God here and in this uh, account in Exodus? And you know, someone had said, well, it makes God sound pretty, pretty punitive and pretty violent and pretty austere. And I said, it does, doesn't it? Um, because we haven't got to Jesus yet. You know, John says that uh, the law came by Moses, and and Paul commends the giving of the law. It's good, it's holy, um, but grace and truth has come from Jesus Christ. And so the full embodiment of truth hasn't come until we get to Jesus. And then once we discover Jesus, then we can go back into the Old Testament and see all sorts of hints and signposts that are pointing us to Jesus. But it starts with knowing the Jesus story really well. We have to invest ourselves in the Gospels to sort of get that down so that we understand the ways of Jesus and how God reveal or how Jesus reveals God to us. Then we can go back into the Old Testament. And often what we do um, is allegorize. Uh, parts that really don't feel and sound like Jesus, particularly some of the hyper-violent uh, yeah. passages in the Old Testament. You know, we we don't need to literalize those and somehow harmonize those with the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yeah, Rather, I, I really... Yeah, I really appreciate oh, that, that like in your book, you actually remind readers that like there's more than just the historical literal, like you give mention to there's the allegorical symbolic, there's the ethical moral reading, there's the mystical um, analogical ways of reading and that these are all faithful. And I, I love that you're pointing us that to that, that we read Jesus into uh these, you know, we go to the Old Testament with Jesus as our rabbi. And I think that's super important that that you've done that it, it again it definitely resonates with the language of our tribe here at jesus and, I, and I appreciate brad jerzak yeah. who is orthodox an orthodox theologian who drew my attention to aquinas of course one of the western catholic uh doctors of the church um and it was aquinas who talked about he talked about the two senses of of scripture but really those two senses, because one has three kind of subcategories, it's really better to think about there's really four meanings of scripture. And the first one is historical, the historical literal. And and it's, so it's, it's good to have that reading of scripture. Um, the ethical reading of scripture has to be filtered through Jesus. So in, in the book, what I say is when you're reading scripture for its ethical reading, you have to ask, what is this text calling me to do as a follower of Jesus? Because everything that is historical literal doesn't apply to me as a follower of Jesus. So like Deuteronomy uh, 21 and in, in the giving of the law, it talks about stoning a rebellious son. So it's like you got a rebellious son, you get him and you get the elders and a bunch of rocks, take him to the edge of the city and stone him to death. 
And now you do. You, there might be some parents. They're like, yep, yeah. there's been some That's days. Chapter and verse. 21. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but of course, no one would ever, there's no Christian who would read Deuteronomy 21 and say, oh yeah, this is the way you, you discipline a rebellious child. You kill them, right? Obviously, it's absurd. As a Christian, you would never do that. Jesus wouldn't encourage us to do that. So the ethical reading of Scripture has to be filtered through a Jesus lens, and then the allegorical reading, which is a historic Christian reading of Scripture, the allegorizing of these ancient texts in the Old Testament is what Christians have been doing from the very beginning. Yeah. And so even when Jesus is, is doing this, and then Paul later does it. In 1 Corinthians, Paul sees the rock that Moses whacks with the stick and water flows. Um, that that rock is Jesus. Well, is it literally Jesus? Of course not. But the apostle is going back into the Old Testament and looking for Jesus in an allegorical sense. Um, so we see Jesus doing that. We see Paul doing it. I mean, Jesus does it when he talks about Jonah and the whale. Jesus didn't say, now, by the way, remember, literally, Jonah was literally in a whale. Because it's possible, guys, you can live inside a whale for three days not at all what Jesus does. Jesus sees Jonah in the well and says, just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days, so the Son of Man uh, will be buried for three days and then rise on the third day. So Jesus does this. That's why Brad Jerzak calls it reading in the Emmaus way. It's what Jesus mm -hmm. did on the road to Emmaus. Paul does this. The early Christians did it. And so it's a resource for us to honor the inspiration and the sacredness and the written authority that Scripture is for us as our canonical text, um, but it doesn't require us to literalize some parts, particularly the Old Testament, that are egregious. That has caused some fundamentalist-type Christians to abandon the faith altogether. Yeah, you know, when I've talked to people who are deconstructing, they often will bring up some of these hyper-violent passages. And say, how can God command Samuel, you know, to go kill all the Amalekites, every man, woman, child, ox, donkey, all the animals and the babies and all of them. And so to be able to say to a person, you know, you don't have to take that literal. Uh, perhaps God didn't literally say that. And that when people realize, wait, the allegorical meaning of Scripture is a valid way to read Scripture. It just... It, it it really will save people and help them stay oh, yeah. in the faith. Um, yeah. I mean, we could talk endlessly just about that one chapter about reading scripture with Jesus at the center. Uh, in fact, there's so many great uh, books and resources out there. One that I recommend for our listening audience is Brad Jerzak's A More Christlike Word. I think that yep. would be a great one. Subtitle is Reading Scripture in the Amazed Way. So check that out. Uh, but I'm going to move us along just because I think like this is something we actually talk a lot about because I was really curious about sort of the middle section of your book. Because my assumption when I picked up the book... Uh, well, um, I didn't literally pick it up. I have a digital version. You know how it is, <laughs> but the analogy comes through. My assumption is I thought I was going to get 
primarily like a, a focus on the theological construct, maybe even like an interpretive method like we've already discussed, maybe a bit of prayer. I was really happy for the prayer section. Uh, but then in this middle section, you have a whole middle section on virtue, on Christian virtues. And I was really curious, why, like, why do we need to recapture capture virtue in our centering of Jesus? What is it about virtue ethics? Maybe give our listening audience like a bit of background. What are you even saying by that? Sure. Um, so virtue ethics in the Christian tradition roots our moral decision-making in the people that we are. And I, and I don't, I don't think I talk a whole lot in the book about what I, I say a little bit, um, but I don't really go into a deep dive on my little pet project that I have been working on for a few years Ooh, about virtue project. ethics, okay. little, 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 little pet project. Because I, for me, I just made some wrong assumptions. I just assumed all Christians believe that our ethical foundation was rooted in character, in integrity, in the people that we are becoming. And I am just, I have a growing, I don't think the right word, because I don't want to call them across as judgmental, but I have a growing concern that we have set aside moral decision-making based in character and the kind of people we are, virtue ethics, has been set aside for uh, pragmatic forms of moral decision-making, what would be called uh, consequentialism. In other words, we determine uh, right and wrong moral decisions based on outcomes. And I'm really bothered by this growing trend for Christians to have this, well, the ends justify the means, um, so that utilitarian uh, form of ethics, um, because that's not been the tradition for Christians from the beginning. Um, Aquinas, quoting Aquinas again, Aquinas um, in the, the Middle Ages was was leading a revival of of sort of Aristotelian virtue ethics. So uh, Aquinas was building upon what the Greek philosopher Aristotle was teaching, mm -hmm. and that is we become by doing. Yeah. So our being, the kind of people we want to be, grows out of our practice, what we are doing. So Aristotle you know, would say, if you want to you know, be a, a musician and play some type of instrument, um, well, let me just modernize it. If if you want to be a guitar player, the way you become a guitar player is by playing guitar. Mm. Now, it requires structure and practice, and you need someone to help you kind of, this is what you start practicing. But when I first learned guitar in college, like a lot of us did, right? You know, I learned like, what, G, C, D, and E minor, and A minor, five chords, so I could play every praise song written in the 1980s and early 90s. Um, but that's the way I learned guitar, is a friend who's a guitar player said, here's a worship song, it has three chords, G, C, D, go learn to play this song. And I learned to play a song by playing guitar. So you become a guitar player by playing guitar. Yeah. 
so Aristotle taught, and then Aquinas builds upon that in the Christian tradition, you become a loving person by doing loving things. You become a merciful person by doing merciful things. You become a patient person by doing patient things. And I just assumed that this is just what all Christians believed, but my pastoral experience has shown, nope, that character is no longer prized. Um pragmatics is getting things done is and i think the infiltration of uh partisan politics within the church has made that even even worse so because of all of that that's all in the background it's not that stuff's not in the book it's all in the background because of all that i have really desired to have uh, a renewed a revival on christian virtue so i start not with the cardinal virtues, but the theological virtues. So Aquinas would say the theolo- they're theological in the sense they're given to us by God, and it becomes the foundation for our entire virtuous life, our entire moral life, and they're, they're the, va- the virtues of faith, hope, and love. So I devote a chapter to each of those as really just a, it's just really an introduction, I think, to virtue ethics. Well, I'd be very curious when your pet project perhaps um, grows into a continued book on this. I'm sure you're reading lots of like Stanley Hauerwas and others on virtue ethics. So that sounds great. Um, What I love about that is like, I think you're, again, you're speaking to the longing of a secular world where beauty is very attractive. And I think there's something about unless we embody it, uh, like it's not going to capture uh, what the longings of 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 our culture, and especially like like I have a lot of Gen Zs in our church, and man, they can sniff out authenticity right. a mile away, right? And right. So there's and something about unless we unless we live it, we're never gonna we're never gonna see that at work in in our church. I can't quote the exact statistics, but uh, Glenn Packiam in his book, Resilient Pastor, he did work with the Barna Research Group, and I can't remember the exact number, um, but there's some survey data on congregations. Do you consider your pastor um, a reliable source on social and political issues? And it was somewhere in the 20s or 30 percent. I mean, it's it is the minority so to spin it another way the majority of people in pews committed church members don't think that their pastors have really anything to say about social or political matters and i take that as a chastening as as discipline that we as now i'm speaking of pastors and church leaders that we need that authentic moral presence in our community. I think that's what the church is called to do, not to broker political power or to become just another lobbying group, but I think the church is the moral conscience of the city that we live in. And if we as pastors aren't being deeply formed in the ways of Jesus and becoming true sages and contemplatives and wise people that a younger generation can look to, I think the church is in trouble because we'll continue to get marginalized 
Um, and we also have this great tradition. We have theological resources going back 2,000 years that can help us come up with and articulate gospel responses um, to all the social issues that are out there. But we we have to have that wisdom of heart, not just all the information and you know the rhetorical persuasive skills. We need that kind of genuine like character formation that gives us the moral authority to speak in the public square in such a way that a younger generation can go, okay, now this is different. This is this is someone who has some real authority to speak here because of the way they live their lives. Yeah. And I, I think that reminds me that like we're getting the results that we're putting out there in the evangelical yes. world. So much of our gospels and our gospeling tells a limited story right. where it's like, we're only interested in getting souls into, you know, some sort of escape plan into heaven rather than the embodiment of new creation now. And you talk a bit about it in that book, uh, yes. in your book. I'm curious because the whole last half of your book is kind of this call into community that the Christian community, this common life together is is something that's in the fabric of what it means to center Jesus in the Jesus collective. We like to say that to be saved includes belonging to a community under Jesus called to live the life of the future now. Um, yes. Which is, which is a whole like kind of like, mind reset from you know just say a prayer and you're good right like to get to heaven uh, but i'm curious like what would you say um to those that you know they've experienced a lot of disappointment um and they find the idea of a common life together like distant and detached from like what they want to do in their following of jesus why why should they reconsider a common life together well yeah, that last section is sort of an outward focus. The first two sections are more inward focused um, in centering Jesus. But the last section is thinking outward first as Christian community and then political uh, engagement and advocacy for justice. But it starts that first kind of outward step is outward within our own own community of faith. And I would advocate for that for people. Well, first, I would say I understand that Christian community is difficult, and I recognize that many people have experienced um, unbelievable heartache and harshness in really bad, toxic churches. Um, a church called Tove by uh, Scott McKnight and his, and his daughter was such a helpful resource, um, not only to give us practices that can form a goodness culture within the church, but a lot of hope in that. Um, there are good churches out there. Um, so I recognize the hurt, the pain, the difficulty. But this has been Jesus' project from the very beginning. When Peter said, you are the King, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And when Jesus said, I'm going to build based on this revelation, this acknowledgement, I'm going to build my church. So for 2,000 years, this is what Jesus has been doing. And so if we love Jesus, we're going to love what Jesus is doing and be a part of what Jesus is doing. And he's building communities and he's building churches that have a goodness culture. So I encourage people and I encounter them all the time in our online congregation where they'll say, listen, we've searched and we cannot find a church that we we deem 
healthy without toxic theology or without baggage and issues. And so we offer our online congregation as a concession. Um, I always want people to find a local church in their community. That's the best. If you can't find it in your local community, uh, committing to an online church, or some churches will have what they call online campuses, I think that's better than nothing. Um, but I would encourage people to, to, if you've been hurt and you're distant from the church, to give it another chance, because one, it's what Jesus is doing, and it is healthy for our own formation. Um, Hauerwas and uh, Williman in Resident Aliens um, say that the beauty of Christian community is the fact that God is building a family out of strangers. And so authentic Christian community isn't just hanging out with your friends at a coffee shop or a pub. And I advocate for both of those. Hang out with your friends. You need friends. And you need yes, to you do, do stuff with your yes, friends. Yes, you do. I'm fine with that. That's great. That's excellent. I have my friends. We're going to a baseball game uh, here in a, uh, actually tomorrow night. So I'm all for that. That's not Christian community, at least not Christian community in its fullness, because Christian community is not just hanging out with your friends, but it's learning to love people who are not like you. Yeah. And think about the missional presence of a congregation where people of different ethnicities, people from different socioeconomic backgrounds, people with different political opinions and sort of histories of voting um, can come together in a community. What a demonstration to our polarized and divided culture if we can learn to love one another in Christian community. That's that's the best pitch I can make. Jesus is building his church, and this is how we grow in Christ-likeness, learning to love people who are not like us. That's why I, I, I've invested my life in the church and will continue. It's my calling mm -hmm. to serve and build the church. Um, and there is no other thing like it. There is no other unity-building uh, mechanism in our culture that has the potential and power of the local church. Mm. Yeah, that's so good, Eric. I, I really appreciate you saying that. And kind of a thought that came to mind as you were sharing about like the different ethnicities, the different social classes, like where else would you meet people but in a church these days? Like it, it seems right. in our polarized age, our, our algorithms are keeping us into these segmented communities and right. like church is the one place where you're going to encounter people these days where like, they're not like you. They're not right. like, like they may not, you would, would never imagine they'd be your friends, but they could be your family in Jesus. Like, I just love it. I love, yeah. I love when I see those transformational moments. We did a, a book study. Uh, we used Drew Hart's Trouble I've Seen mm, um, to talk book. about systemic racism and, and the sin of white superiority. And we live in a predominantly white area. 90% of our community is white. Um, our church is probably along those lines. And so we did this book study and I personally invited some women of color and I was honest with them because I'm an open book. I'm just, I'm honest. My jokes and my sarcasm sometimes get me in trouble, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm honest. And I said, listen, would you consider coming to this book study? Cause I can't just sit around with a bunch of white people and talk about racism. 
And we had these four women of color. And so we did this book study and we had listening circles and it was beautiful. And the last night we're wrapping up and I just asking people to share final thoughts. Had a white man in that group say, I have learned so much. I had no idea. I did not know any of this. I didn't know the history of black oppression in the United States. And uh, this has really opened my eyes. Had a black woman say, this is the first time I have ever talked about race with people who don't look like me. And it feels so good because I feel heard and affirmed. And that, I'm getting chills right now thinking about that. That's the power of the gospel within community. Because I do believe we have gospel answers to racism and white superiority. I mean, there's gospel resources. This is, the gospel is breaking. I think Rich Velotis talks about the gospel as a sledgehammer that's breaking down the walls of hostility between us. And, but to have a local congregation of people that didn't really know each other, even spend any time with one another outside of the church to come together and for a white person to acknowledge their ignorance, for a black woman to acknowledge she feels heard by people who don't look like her, Man, if we can model that in communities all over North America, how powerful that would be in dismantling the the satanic systems of racism in North America. And Um, and we need to model it. Like, just like you were saying earlier about, like, we need to encounter Jesus in our bodies, in prayer, in spiritual practice, in virtue. We need to encounter Jesus in community in faces that are not like ours and right. people that are not like us. Um, I can't do justice by myself. I really That's can't. Right. I need a community for justice. Um, yes. Speaking of which, um, you spend a bit of time in the book talking about, you know, that we're divided on matters of justice. And you, you talk a bit about like even centering what we mean by justice in a Jesus way, which uh, which is just beautiful. I love this quote in the book. You're quoting Derwin Gray, and he, he says, justice without Jesus is vengeance. God's mercy is for the oppressor and the oppressed. And I just, I was struck by that. I, I'm just curious if you might share a few thoughts with our listening audience on what it means to, to do the work of justice, which uh, Dr. Cornell West talks about justice is what love looks like in public. Um, what does it that mean for a Jesus-centered church and a community leaning into Jesus? How do we do you have any initial impressions on that? Well, what I do in the chapter, what I encourage people to do is rescue the word and the concept justice. Rescue and rip it right out of the hands of politicians. Um, justice is a Bible word. Justice is a word that belongs to the church. Now, other people and, and political institutions and those who are outside the Christian faith can advocate for justice, use justice. But I want Christians, followers of Jesus, to see that justice has a deep biblical root, Um, We don't see justice, the word in English, in the New Testament as much as we see it in the Old Testament, which again is the value of the inspiration of the Old Testament, why we need that. Um, We also miss sometimes justice because it's hidden in the English word righteousness. 
Um, righteousness is such a horrible English word because it's horrible because no one knows really what it means. And it's, um, it, it's like a legalese word. Like we exactly. primarily think of it in legal categories. And so what you have in the church in North America is left-leaning um, Christians, more progressive Christians, see righteousness as justice in the community. And more right-leaning, more pietistic kind of Christians, evangelicals, see righteousness as a right relationship with God. But what you see, if you can take uh, sune, the, the Greek word translated righteousness, and, and see that concept through the Old Testament and into the New, with Jesus at the center, you find actually it's both. Um, that so righteousness is not just a right relationship with God. I love the New Living Translation. Um, I did that uh, last two year cycle, went through, and I, and I I teach from the New Living. I don't like that the New Living Translation often translates righteousness as right with God or right relationship with God. Not that it isn't true, it's just a limitation, because often righteousness in the New Testament is for justice in the community. So it's really, it's really both. So I want to pull justice and rip it right out of the hands of politicians, and let's look at and develop a biblical framework for what Jesus-centered justice looks like. And when I've done that over the years— what I've found is that really justice could be the word we use to determine God's work and activity in the earth. Um, because whether it is setting people right or setting systems right, justice is about God's activity of setting right a world gone wrong. And so Tom Wright says that if God's going to be at work in setting the world right. It starts by God setting people right, because we originally were created in the image of God to uh, co-reign with God, to have dominion over the earth. So God chooses to rescue through people. So there you see both. Justice is both our work in the community, and justice is um, participating in God's work of, of setting us right, and, and we need both. And so I'm still— um, I get, I've, got, I've been challenged a couple of times, and one person said, wasn't salvation the best way to describe God's work in the earth? And yeah, I think you can see salvation and um, justice very similar. Um, but once you see that justice is God's activity, both within us and in the community, um, I think we're much quicker to want to then participate in what God is doing. Um, in uh, Fleming Rutledge, in her book, The Crucifixion, she likes to think of justice as rectifying. So justification, right, it has that just root in it, justification is rectification. And, and, I, and I like that. That's, that's helpful to see, okay, God's righteousness or God's justice is about God rectifying things that were wrong, and now God's setting it right. And, and once we can see it in a in a biblical point of view, instead of in terms of partisan politics, it frees us then um, to then go advocate for justice where we feel called. Mm. 
That's so good. This has been such a rich time in our discussion today. And I just want to thank you for making space to hang out with Jesus Collective and share your thoughts and uh, talk about your upcoming book here. So thanks again, Derek, for, for, for just being here. Thanks, Paul. I appreciate it, man. I got one last question for you and then, well, actually two last questions. So a question I'd love to ask uh, when I wrap up uh, a time talking to anyone is like, what is giving you hope in the days ahead? Um, especially as we talk about centering Jesus, like what gives you hope about this? And then uh, lastly, where can people find you? But yeah, first question, what what's giving hope. you hope? Yeah, hope. I'll, I'll And I'll just repeat some things that I've said. Part of the hope that I see is in this ecumenical, Jesus-centered movement. And for all of the scandals that the church has endured and is continuing to endure, particularly through toxic leadership and leaders, I have hope because I'm continuing to see the church relationally come together. You know, there's no, I have no hope that institutionally um, will ever be one church institution, but relationally, I'm beginning to see that um, between Catholics and Protestants, of course, that has a bloody history, uh, between evangelical and mainline churches, between evangelical and charismatic Christians, you know, that those wars are done. And I think that's a beautiful thing. I have hope because I see brothers and sisters in Christ increasingly not dividing over second-tier doctrinal issues, but allowing the essentials of the faith and a, and a centrality on Jesus to unify us, particularly between Catholics and Protestants. You know, in our Vatican II world, uh, the Catholic Church has acknowledged that we are brothers. I think the language of Vatican II is we're deficient brothers, but it still calls us brothers. And I hang I'll on to that it. part. But I think all brothers are deficient brothers. If you have <laughs> listeners exactly. that are out there, if you have a brother, you could probably think of a few deficiencies. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I know there's 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 Catholics, there's Roman Catholics, the traditionals, the trads that, you know, are wanna wanna go before go back to before pre-Vatican II. Uh, but some of the Catholics I interact with, particularly Benedictines, you know, they're all pro-Vatican too. And, uh, that's beautiful. So I have great hope in that. Uh, people can find me, um, yeah, online, uh, Derek Vreeland. You just got to spell it right. Uh, Instagram, Twitter. How do you spell your name? Okay. So, uh, unfortunately I didn't have the name John Smith. Well, even John, you have to spell, uh, David Smith. That was not my name. So Derek is D E. R-E-K, five letters, the easy way, no superfluous R's or I's or C's, D-E-R-E-K, and then my last name, Vreeland, is V like Victor, R-E-E-L-A-N-D. You can find me Twitter, Instagram, the Book of Faces. I'm out there. There you go. Uh, well, thanks again. And to all our listeners, uh, thank you for joining us, for pulling up a chair at the metaphorical podcast table. Here's to keeping Jesus at the center. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget to check out JesusCollective.com, where you can find more resources and upcoming events. 
learn about getting involved through partnership, and donate so we can keep offering content like this and engage more people and churches around the world. We'd also love to hear from you, so feel free to reach out to us with your ideas and feedback. You can drop us a message on social media or email us at connect at jesuscollective.com. Until next time.